0: Hello and welcome to the introduction to George Eliot's Silas Marner, the one and only novel that we'll read in 362. I've split this introduction to Eliot and Silas Marner into two parts. This is part one. The Victorian age becomes synonymous with the novel, which replaces poetry as the dominant literary genre. The novel that we're reading, Silas Marner, is much shorter than most Victorian novels which tend to run to five or 600 pages or even more. Despite its length, however, we can nonetheless view Silas Marner as a Victorian novel in miniature. It bears the imprint of romanticism like much Victorian literature, all while striving for the realism and moral purpose that comes to characterize the Victorian period. George Eliot is the pen name or pseudonym used by Mary Ann Evans, born in 1819 Evans, or Elliot, became one of the most important and influential intellectuals of the Victorian period. Before turning to fiction in 1857, she had built a successful career as a translator, editor, essayist, and journalist. Elliot began writing fiction relatively late in her career, and from her first work of fiction, Scenes of Clerical Life, she used a pseudonym, A decision prompted in part by her unconventional private life, more of which later, and partly by a desire to protect her reputation as a journalist. As she wrote to her publisher John Blackwood If Eliot turns out a dull dog in an ineffective writer, a mere flash in the pan, I, for one, am determined to cut him on the first intimation of that disagreeable fact. When we consider Eliot's biography, we need to be aware of two. Key issues. Firstly, her unconventional personal life broke Victorian social and sexual codes, and secondly, her religious beliefs challenged Victorian Christian orthodoxies. We'll begin with the personal life. In 1853, Eliot began a relationship with George Lewis, a married man. They subsequently lived together until his death in 1878. Lewis was separated from his wife Agnes when his relationship with Eliot began. But he could not divorce her as he had previously condoned Agnes's adultery even registering a child his wife had with another man as his own Elliot's decision to live with Lewis outside marriage led to her ostracism from polite society as Charles Elliot Norton put it in an 1869 letter quote, she is not received in general society and the women who visit her are either so emancipate as not to mind what the world says about them or have no social position to maintain. More profoundly for Elliot, this relationship also led to a breakdown in her relationship with her own family. Her beloved older brother, Isaac, cut off all contact with Elliot until after Lewis's death, when she married Johnny Cross, her first legal marriage. Importantly, Elliot did not see her relationship with George Lewis as immoral. Instead, she regarded it as a proper marriage even if it was not legitimated in law, and referred to herself as Mrs Lewis throughout their relationship. But Eliot didn't just break Victorian social convention when it came to marriage. Importantly, she also challenged Victorian religious dogma. As a teenager, Eliot was fervently religious, drawn especially to the evangelical movement which was an interdenominational branch of Christianity that placed a special emphasis on conversion, the Bible, which they viewed as a primary religious authority, and on the salvation made possible by Jesus' death. In her early 20s, however, influenced by her reading of Charles Hennell's inquiry concerning the origin of Christianity, Eliot began to doubt her faith, with the result that she gave up attending church, much to her family's horror. In the 1840s and 50s, Eliot translated two important German works, David Friedrich Strauss's Das Leben Jesu and Ludwig Feuerbach's The Essence of Christianity. Both works are examples of higher criticism, which was an intellectual movement that sought to read the Bible as a historical rather than as a sacred text. This movement understood Jesus not as a divine figure, but instead as human, a human who was nonetheless an important moral leader and teacher is a significant figure for us, then, because she finds a way of resolving the apparent conflict that emerges in the 19th century between scientific discoveries and biblical truth. Following Strauss and Feuerbach, Eliot rejects the notion that we should understand the Bible as literally true. Instead, Eliot argues that the Bible conveys moral truths through myth. For Eliot, God is a projection of the highest and noblest sentiments of humanity. As she puts it, quote, The idea of God, so far as it has a high spiritual influence, is the ideal of a goodness entirely human, i.e. an exaltation of the human. In other words, Eliot retains the moral teachings of Christianity, but without any supernatural element. As she wrote in 1860, just a year before the publication of Silas Marner, I no longer have any antagonism towards any faith in which human sorrow and human longing for purity have expressed themselves, On the contrary, I have a sympathy with it that predominates over all argumentative tendencies. I have not returned to dogmatic Christianity, to the acceptance of any set of doctrines as a creed and a superhuman revelation of the unseen. But I see in it, Christianity, the highest expression of the religious sentiment that has yet found its place in the history of mankind. Religion, of course, is at the heart of Silas Marner, Myrner's move to Raveloe is prompted by his disillusionment with the Lantern Brethren, the Calvinist sect that he had belonged to. In Raveloe, we see various expressions of religious faith, including rector Mr Macy, who's described as a reasonably faulty man on page 102, and Dolly Winthrop, who doesn't understand what the letters IHS actually signify, but knows, quote, they've a good meaning, as it's put on 82. And if you're unfamiliar with these letters, they're the firstly letters of the name Jesus in Greek and they're often used as a Christian emblem. As you read Silas Marner, you want to take note of the religious attitudes of its characters and most especially Silas Marner's own spiritual journey. How might we connect the novel to Eliot's own professed position on religion? She's sometimes referred to as post-Christian. Does this label fit Silas Marner? And the Victorian novels often have a higher moral purpose what seems to be the higher moral purpose of this particular work. Hello and welcome to the second part of our lecture on Silas Marner by George Eliot. Eliot began Silas Marner in 1860. She was working on a heavily researched historical novel set in Renaissance Florence at the time but told her publisher that she intended to produce, quote, another English story before finishing Romola. She claimed that the idea for Silas Marner came to her, quote, first of all, quite suddenly, as a sort of legendary tale suggested by her recollection of having once, in early childhood, seen a linen weaver with a bag on his back. But as her mind dwelt on the subject, she became inclined to a more realistic treatment. This statement is useful for a few reasons. Firstly, it points to the complexity of Silas Marner's genre. On the one hand, it is, in many ways, a realist novel that offers detailed and unidealised depictions of its characters. On the other hand, the novel retains elements of the legendary tale. Critics have described it as an allegory, a fable, or even a fairy tale. As we'll discuss, the plot hinges on the exchange of a bag of gold for a young child. A plot device that is so explicitly symbolic but it seems to sit more comfortably in the allegory, the fable or the fairy tale than it does in a piece of realist fiction. The other thing that's interesting about this statement for Eliot is the way in which it recalls the tropes of Romantic-era writing. She claims that the idea came to her suddenly, it's unbidden and it's inspired by a memory from her childhood. This debt to the romantics becomes even more obvious when we look at the novel's epigraph, which is taken directly from Wordsworth's poem Michael. Indeed in that same letter to Blackwood, Elliot says that she should not have believed that anyone would have been interested in Silas Marner but herself since William Wordsworth is dead. And she even goes on to state that she has fell all through as if the story would have lent itself best to metrical rather than prose fiction. This statement not only reminds us of Wordsworth's promotion of the ballad, that narrative form of poetry, but it also invokes his argument that all that divides poetry from prose is the use of metre. There are at least two other important connections between romantic poetry and Silas Marner, however. Firstly, Eliot's novel shares Romanticism's interest in childhood, and especially in the child as an emblem of innocence and love, uncorrupted by social convention or so-called civilised values. We've seen this interest in William Blake and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, but it's also apparent in Wordsworth's poetry, including Michael the poem that Eliot quotes in Silas Marner's epigraph. Secondly, Eliot's novel focuses explicitly on low and rustic life, much as Wordsworth advised writers to do in the preface. And here it's worth saying a few words about the setting of Silas Marner. This novel is set in the past, in the early years of the 19th century, around 50 years before it was written. And it focuses on two communities, the Lantern Yard brethren, who are a strict Calvinist sect living in an unnamed industrial city in the north of England, and the rural village of Raveloe, which is, as yet, largely untouched by industrialisation. This distinction between these locations is important. Firstly, it reminds us that industrialisation was an uneven process. Not all areas of Britain were industrialised at the same rate. Secondly, the difference between these settings allows Eliot to explore the impact of industrialisation in her own contemporary moment, as well as in the past. We can read the community in Raveloe as representing Britain's pre-industrial past, just as the northern city represents its industrial present. As you begin thinking about Salismar's engagement with its social reality, you'll also want to think further about its realism. We began thinking about the genre of realism when we read Samuel Johnson's Ramble No. 4 essay way back in week 4. Not only is Victorian fiction strongly associated with realism, but Eliot herself has often been viewed as a key exponent of this genre. Her essays and journals can help us understand her realist philosophy and the social purpose of novels like Silas Marner. Helpfully, Ella even offers us a definition of realism in her 1856 review of John Ruskin's Modern Painters. Realism is, she writes, quote, the doctrine that all truth and beauty are to be attained by a humble and faithful study of nature and not by substituting vague forms bred by imagination on the mists of feeling in place of definite substantial reality. You'll hear echoes here of Johnson's argument that realist fiction requires accurate observation of the living world as well as, perhaps surprisingly, a challenge to Romanticism. Where Wordsworth and the Romantics had prioritised the imagination, Eliot suggests that writers and artists should attempt to prevent their imagination from colouring their depiction of the world. But Eliot doesn't argue that art and literature should attempt to produce purely scientific objective accounts of reality. Instead, Eliot's realism, like Wordsworth's poetry, engages not just with our external reality but with our internal reality. Importantly, Eliot believes realist art can build sympathy and understanding between people more effectively than political, economic, social or scientific discourse because realist art can depict our emotional, affective, interior lives. As Eliot writes, appeals founded on generalizations and statistics require a sympathy ready-made, a moral sentiment already in activity, But a picture of human life such as a great artist can give surprises even the trivial and selfish into that attention to what is apart from themselves. The social purpose of realist fiction for Eliot therefore is its potential to produce sympathy between different classes and most especially its capacity to create sympathy among the middle and upper classes for the poor. Okay, well that is my brief introduction to Elliot and to Silas Marner. I am really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this novel. I hope you enjoyed it. All right, see you soon. Bye-bye.